Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. This morning we want to look at verses 10 through 21. And I've entitled this section, Growing in Jesus Christ. Here's a good question for you this morning. Would you consider yourself a growing Christian? Do you know Christ in a more intimate way now than you did last year or 10 years ago? Now, I know sometimes it's very incremental, it's very slow, but do you see yourself as a growing Christian? Now, remember, as we've looked at chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, in verses 1 through 9, dealt with the subject of salvation. John covered that last week. He talked about justification. And what the Apostle Paul did in verses 1 through 9 of Philippians 3 is he talked about knowing Christ, and he uses the metaphor of an accountant. Paul talks about his gain column and his loss column. You know, if you're into accounting, you understand that terminology. And he said, prior to salvation, I had all this religious credentials in my gain column that I thought would get me into heaven. But Paul says, when I came to know Jesus Christ, all those things in my gain column are now in my loss column. In fact, he uses a very strong word in the Greek. He calls it skubalon, which is basically human poop. And he says that all of my righteousness before God was human poop. He says, when I trusted in Jesus Christ, God imputed to me his righteousness so that now I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so in verses 1 through 9, he talks about justification. Now in the section that we're looking at, verses 10 through 21, he's going to shift gears and he's not going to be talking about knowing Christ and salvation Rather, he's going to be talking about growing in Christ. You know, once you come to salvation, God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to progress in your Christian life. And so Paul shifts the metaphor here, and he doesn't talk about being an accountant. Rather, he talks about being an athlete. And he says, I'm in a race, and I'm reaching for the prize. What's the prize? The prize is knowing Christ. It is becoming like Christ. Now, we do that in this life. And then when we die and we go to heaven, we're all going to know Christ, obviously, in a perfect way at that point. And so what Paul is going to do in this section is he's going to give us principles on how we can grow in Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at those principles, let me give you some false measurements of spiritual growth, because a lot of times people have misconceptions about what spiritual growth is. Some people think spiritual growth is church attendance. Now, you can't grow unless you're in fellowship on a regular basis. But coming to church Sunday after Sunday or even coming to Wednesday night or a small group, those things are good, but they don't necessarily equate growth. You can attend church your whole life and be a spiritual pygmy. Some people think it's Bible knowledge. You can't grow without Bible knowledge, but Bible knowledge in and of itself, if it's not applied to your life, does not mean you're growing spiritually. Some people think it's an encounter with God. I talk to Christians and they say, well, I had this encounter with God at the altar. I'm not against encounters with God. I've had them before. But having a solitary encounter with God doesn't necessarily mean you're developing in your spiritual life. Or some people are busy serving God. They want to serve God. And listen, serving God is so critical to your spiritual growth. But you can be busy serving God and not sitting at the feet of Jesus and not really growing in your walk with God. And then finally, some people have a false measurement of time. If I've been saved for a period of time, 
I've been going to church for 50 years, and I've been saved for 50 years. I must be spiritually mature. Not necessarily. The church in America is riddled with people that have been saved for 30, 40, 50 years, and they're not maturing in their walk with God. They don't understand the Word of God. And so these are often false measurements of spiritual growth. Now, what are the principles to help you grow in your walk with God? Let me share them with you. I'm going to give you 10 of them from this text. Normally, I don't give that many. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. And we're going to look at these principles. Now, Paul is not being exhaustive. There's a lot of other things he could have said. But again, as he describes himself as a runner in a race, he sees the finish line. And when Paul ran the race, 1 Corinthians 9, he ran in such a way as to get the prize. Paul didn't loaf. He ran the Christian race with maximum effort. So what are the principles to help you grow? And I want to ask you this morning to measure your life and ask this question, am I really growing or am I just going through the motions? A lot of Christians just go through the motions. Hey, I get up, I go to church, I do my thing, but they're not really growing. And if you want a definition of what spiritual maturity is, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, it's becoming like Christ in my character, and in my conduct. That is the ultimate definition of spiritual maturity. Do I see myself becoming more like Jesus Christ? Well, the first principle that he gives here, if you and I are going to know Christ, is we must depend on his power. Notice, if you will, verse 10. He says, that I may know him. You say, Mike, didn't he talk about knowing Christ in verses 1 through 9? That was knowing Christ and salvation. Here, the word know is a Greek word that means to know something intimately. It says in the Old Testament, Adam knew his wife Eve. He just didn't know about her. He knew her physically and sexually. And so this is an intimate knowledge. So Paul is saying, now that I'm saved, I want to know Jesus in a more intimate, personal way. And what is it he wanted to know? Well, notice verse 10, the power of his resurrection. Paul wanted to experience the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, lived on inside of the Apostle Paul, lives on the inside of you and I. And Paul just didn't want to be a Sunday Christian only. Paul wanted to be a dynamic, spirit-filled believer that was controlled with the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. And you and I know we cannot grow in our Christian life if we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. You're either under the control of the Holy Spirit as a lifestyle, not perfectly, but as a lifestyle, or you're under the control of your flesh, and the Bible calls that being a carnal Christian. And you cannot grow if you're not a Spirit-filled believer. Now, this is not some mystical experience. Many times you don't feel anything, so you have to assume you're Spirit-filled by faith. You say, well, how can I be controlled by the Holy Spirit? Well, I remember this past week, my wife flew out to Alaska to see my daughter. She just had her first uh, baby girl, and so her husband's stationed in Alaska. She flew out there. My other daughter was in Miami with my parents, and so I was home alone, so I had to do all the cooking myself. So I went outside, and I put some chicken on the grill, and I went to go turn the propane tank, and nothing was coming out. Thankfully, I had a backup propane tank, so I went in the garage, and I put it in there, and you know, it dawned on me, I have all this power contained in this tank. All that propane was in there, but until I hooked it up and until I turned the valve, it was not released the power. 
And so it is you and I, we must turn the valve, as it were, of the Holy Spirit if we're going to see His power in our life. And so I'm going to use the word power as an acrostic to let you know what you need to do to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Notice the acrostic up on the screen, the word power, the first thing you got to do is pray. If you're not a praying Christian, you're not going to be under the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you got to obey God. If you're not interested in obedience, but just being a Sunday Christian only, you're not going to be a spirit-filled believer. Albeit, you won't obey perfectly, but you got to seek to obey the Lord. Then there's the Word of God. It says in Colossians 3, let the Word dwell within you richly. That's how you and I have the mind of Christ. We've got to be in the Word of God imbibing His truth. Then we got to exalt God, because Ephesians 5 says, be being kept filled with the Spirit, And he says, one of the ways to be filled with the Spirit, he says, sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Worship is a way that we get filled with the Spirit, Sunday morning and throughout the week. And then finally, repent of your sin. When you blow it, and you're going to blow it on a regular basis, say, God, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have been nasty. Forgive me for that, Lord God. I repent of that. You see, it's these things that cause you to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit and experience spiritual growth. So would you say this morning you're a spirit-filled Christian, or would you say you're more of a carnal Christian? You cannot grow without the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a second principle that Paul gives if we're going to know Christ intimately, and that is we must be willing to suffer. We must be willing to suffer. Notice, if you will, verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection... And then he says this, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to have koinonia. I want to have fellowship when I suffer. You say, how? Well, listen, when you and I suffer, what does it do? It drives us to our knees. We have more intimate communion with God. You see, suffering makes us depend upon God. That's where we learn intimacy. That's why there are people overseas that are suffering in North Korea. They probably have a deeper intimate communion with Christ because they're going through a lot more suffering than we do in the West. And so Paul says, I want to know Christ's power, but I want to know what it is to fellowship in his suffering. And then he says, being conformed to his death. He's probably here not talking about spiritual death, but he's saying physical death. Paul was willing to put his life on the line and be martyred if necessary in his commitment to ministry. How do I know he's talking about physical death? Well, in verse 11, he says, in order, see, there's the purpose, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The Greek says, I want to attain the out-resurrection from among the corpses. The out-resurrection from among the corpses. Paul is saying, look, if I suffer for Jesus in fulfilling my mission... He says, if I die for Jesus, it doesn't matter because I'm so identified with Jesus in intimate fellowship. If I die, he's going to raise my body. And so Paul saw it as a win-win for him. I mean, this guy lived at a level that most of us will never get to. But Paul was willing to suffer. Now, he didn't look for suffering, and nor should you and I. But when Paul lived his life for the Lord, he experienced persecution and suffering. And we don't want to limit it just to persecution If you live in this world, you're going to suffer. Jesus said in John chapter 16, before he left, he said to the disciples in the upper room, in this life, you will have trouble. But he said, rejoice, I've overcome the world. None of us likes to suffer, but it's God's greatest tool to mature us and to sift us and to sand us in order to make us more 
like Jesus Christ. You know what I call suffering? It's God's potato peeler. Remember the potato peeler? I remember growing up, my mom would do potatoes and she would skin the top off. Suffering is like a pumice stone. You women would understand that. What does it do? It rubs off all the dead skin in our life. You see, suffering is where we learn to walk with God. But here's the key. Even though we don't look for it, we got to be willing to surrender our hearts to God during that period of suffering. We wrestle with God. Sometimes we get angry at God. We say, God, why me? God, I've been doing all this all my life. Why am I having to go through this? I can't give you all the reasons as to why, but listen, suffering is God's greatest tool to mature us. I was reading about this week fires that took place in Oakland, California in 1991, and it ravaged about 250 homes. And they said when people came back to their homes, they were looking at all the the soot and the debris, all of it was burned up. But this one couple and their daughter noticed that when they got to the debris, there was this porcelain rabbit that had survived the fire. And other people had mentioned that it was porcelain that survived the fire. Well, there was this pastor in that area that lost his house as well. And when he got up to preach that particular Sunday, he told his congregation the same story. He said, when I got to the house, he said, everything was burned up except this porcelain vase. He held up a vase. And he said, you know what? He said, it dawned on me the reason why this porcelain vase survived the fire is because it had been through the fire already once before, and it was able to withstand the second fire. And you see, when you and I go through the fire of affliction, God strengthens us, he matures us, and he grows us. But our response is critical. That's why James 1 says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. But he says, let endurance have its perfect work. In other words, you got to submit and let the trial do what God designed it to do in your life. And so if you want to grow, depend on God's power, be willing to suffer. Thirdly, you must recognize you have not arrived. You must recognize you have not arrived. Notice what he says in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect or mature. Paul says, look, when it comes to knowing God's power, when it comes to knowing intimate fellowship with him and suffering, he says, I haven't arrived in my Christian growth. I haven't matured. He says the same thing. Notice in verse 13, he says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Now, obviously, this is somewhat polemical. A polemic is an attack. Evidently, there were false teachers that were attacking Paul, and they were teaching this era that you could somehow reach this sinless perfection. We don't know if it was the Judaizers that were the ones behind the book of Galatians. We don't know if it was a form of pre-Gnosticism, because the Gnostics said you could reach a point of sinless perfection. By the way, that false doctrine is still with us today in forms of Pentecostalism and even in Wesleyanism, Methodism. There's a group of people today that teach you can get to a point in your life where you reach entire sanctification. You're perfect. And what they have to do is they have to redefine sin. You don't call it sin, you call it a mistake. Well, that's a false doctrine because Paul says here, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't matured fully. And so here's a third principle. If you and I are going to grow, and I think we all understand this, we got to see our need for growth. We got to realize that we haven't arrived yet. And there's a sense of humility there in that we understand that we blow it, we're frail, we're weak, even though we have the power of God. 
and that we haven't reached that state of perfection. That will not happen until we get to heaven. And so we have to have this humility that says, basically, I'm still in process. I'm still growing. And you see, when you don't have that attitude, what happens is you become arrogant and complacent. Now, I think most of us here agree that we haven't arrived because all you got to do is be honest with your own life. When you see your own heart, when you see the wicked thoughts in your mind, and you see your own behavior, you go, you know what, I know I haven't arrived. That's why people who teach that doctrine, they're not being honest with themselves. And I don't know about you, there's times where I've said, man, I've come a long way in my Christian growth. I have a friend, I remember one time in a small group, he said, you know what, Mike, I had a temper problem. He says, now five years later, he says, I've seen a huge change in my life. I'm not where I need to be, he says, but I'm not where I used to be. And you know, maybe in your life, you see growth, and then at times you see where you regress. I blow it all the time. I was telling the last service, I went to the bank this week, I wanted to refinance my truck to see if I get a lower interest rate, because you know, I'm always looking to save money. And so, I had to unfreeze three of the major credit uh, score companies. And the reason why I put them on a freeze is because there's a lot of identity theft, and I have great credit. And so before I could go refinance, I had to call them up and say, unfreeze my credit. And so I called the first one. They were fine. Everything went smooth. Called the second one. Man, it was like scaling a wall to get through. You know, you want to throw your computer? Finally, I got a person on the other end of the line. She said, all right, I'll unfreeze it, but I asked you security questions. I said, shoot. She said, this, this, what's your previous address? You've been through all this before, and I understand. But then she said, how many credit cards do you own? I said, well, I got two. Can you tell me who they are? I said, Bank of America and Wells Fargo. She says, all right, I want you to give me the credit cards you've had the last five years. Well, at that point, I lost my sanctification. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, listen, ma'am, I've already given you the information. I said, next question. I said, stop asking me about how many credit cards I have in my history. Move on. Then I said, look, ma'am, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry I got angry at you. It's just I wanted to move forward. She said, no, 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 no problem. See, sometimes I get in the flesh. I'm like John. I struggle with patience. And so there's times where you see growth and there's times where you see regression. And listen, either you're progressing in your Christian life or you're regressing. There is no middle ground. But even though you regress, that's okay. You got to move forward. That's part of growth. So realize that you have not arrived. And I think most of us realize that we haven't arrived. But let me tell you what our temptation is in the West. And it's not just here, but I think more so in the West because we are surrounded by comfort and ease and materialism, is we get complacent. There's no need to grow. There's no need to push forward. In fact, notice this quote up on the screen. This is a great quote by Fred Smith. He says, something in human nature tempts us to stay where we are comfortable. Isn't that true? We try to find a plateau, a resting place, where we have comfortable stress and adequate finances. We want comfortable associations with people without the intimidation of meeting new people and entering strange situations. Of course, all of us need to plateau for a time, and he understands that, we all do. We climb and then plateau for assimilation. But once we've assimilated what we have learned, we climb again. Now, we should climb again, but notice the problem here. It's unfortunate when we have done our last climb. 
When we have made our last climb, we are old, whether 40 or what? 80. You know what he's saying? A lot of Christians, they get comfortable and they stay there and they don't want to climb anymore. And he says, if you're 40 years old and you're not climbing and growing, he says, you're old already. And so that's the question this morning. Are some of you too comfortable? Am I too comfortable? I have to fight that all the time. We all do in the West. We need to stretch ourselves. And so Paul says, if you want to grow, you got to realize that you have not arrived. Well, there's a fourth principle if you and I are going to know Christ and grow, and that is we must develop a persevering attitude. Notice what he says in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but notice the phrase here, I press on. The Greek says, I keep on pressing on. You see, when you're running a race, you got to press forward. He says in verse 14, the same thing. I press on towards the goal. What's the goal? The finish line. Ultimately, heaven. But he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul kept his eyes on like any runner? The finish line, the prize. What was the prize? Becoming more like Jesus ultimately in heaven. So he says, until I get to heaven and I get that prize, he says, I'm going to keep pushing on towards the prize. I'm going to keep pressing on. You know what that implies? You got to persevere. Pressing on means you're going to deal with resistance. You're going to deal with opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's coming. If you're a committed Christian and you want to grow, it's normal to face opposition. It's normal to have struggle. You say, Mike, why is the Christian life such a battle? Because the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Listen, we're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. That's the imagery of the Christian life. You see, in the West, our imagery of the Christian life is a cruise ship. You know when you go on a cruise ship, you got the buffet, you got all the food you can eat, all the gluttony you could commit, then you go out on the pool and the deck, then you got the casino, then you got the shows. And that's not to say that the Christian life is not fun. There isn't a lot of things we can't enjoy, but the imagery of the New Testament is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. And whenever you're in battle, you're going to face resistance, you're going to face opposition, you're going to face difficulty. And so you know what you got to do? You got to press on. You got to have a persevering heart that says, I'm not going to quit, even though I may fail, even though I may flounder, even though I may blow it royally, even though at times I may get discouraged and we all get discouraged, I got to persevere in my Christian life. This hit home to me a couple months ago, I was about 204 pounds. And I said to myself, you know what? I don't like this. I got to get back to the weight I was when I married Laura. And I said, I'm going to get down to 175. And so I started cutting my calories. And I started eating five small meals, different portions. And look, I have splurge days every week. Last night I had a burger with mac and cheese on it. It was great. Go to Sonic and get what I want. But during the week, I'm strict. And so I get on the scale and I started losing weight. And I thought, all right, this is good. And then I remember one morning I got up, before I took a shower, I got on the scale, and I was 188. I've gone from 204 to 188. Well, then a week goes by, and I busted my hump to try to get lower, and I got on the scale, and I was 189. I wanted to pick the scale up and throw it. You ever been there before if you tried to lose weight? It seems like, and it's not fair, because listen, a moment on the lips is a lifetime on the hips. Do you know that? It seems like you eat something and two days later you put on all this weight, you work really hard and you lose one pound. 
But you know what? I said, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep at it. And I was persevering. I was pressing on. And I weighed the other day. Finally, I got down to 180. And so you got to keep pushing through when you face opposition. You cannot grow in your walk with God if you don't have a persevering heart because you're going to face challenges and you're going to face difficulty. Well, there's a fifth principle that you and I must apply to our life if we're going to grow, and that is we must cultivate a singular focus. We must cultivate a singular focus. Notice what he says in verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I haven't reached the prize. I haven't become totally like Christ, but notice what he says, this one thing I do. The apostle Paul doesn't say these many things I dabble in. He says this one thing I do. Do you notice Paul had a laser focus? Paul had a singular focus, and that was to know Jesus. You say, well, wait a minute. Paul didn't live in the world we live in. Our world is a lot more complicated. True. We have a lot of things going on. There's so many distractions in our culture today. But even in the midst of all the things that you got to do, all the plates that you got to spin in your life, kids, bills, entertainment, hobby, all those things have a legitimate place. But what we have to remember is in the midst of flipping or spinning all those plates is we got to keep our singular focus on knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's easy to allow the world to crowd out that singular focus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. In that culture, they were very poor. And so they were trying to eke out a living. And Jesus says, look, quit worrying about all that. He says, you keep your focus on me and you seek the kingdom first. And so listen, spiritual growth doesn't happen automatically. You can't put the Bible under your pillow and expect to transfer that knowledge when you sleep at night. You don't gain knowledge of the Bible through osmosis. You've got to be intentional, you've got to be focused, and you've got to be very singularly minded if you're going to grow in your walk with God. And you see, the problem in the American church is we've got so many distractions, what happens is we set up idols in our heart. And I know when an idol is beginning to get into my heart, because Jesus is not the focus of my spiritual life. You say, Mike, how do I know it's the singular focus? Look at the fruit you're producing. Look at your attitudes. Look at your mindset. What brings you joy? What brings you happiness other than material things? What excites you? What do you long to do? You see, those reveal where your heart is. And we got to be careful because we all have to deal with these distractions. When I was in graduate school, I have three girls and they're grown now, but my oldest daughter, took, I took her to the grocery store. My wife said, you're on a mission. I want you to get a gallon of milk. That's all I need is a gallon of milk. I said, okay, I can do that. And so I took my older daughter, Caitlin, with me to the grocery store to get a gallon of milk. And I'll never forget this. When I walked in the grocery store, I'm holding her hand and I'm pulling her along and she's looking at the candy. And she says, she started grabbing the candy. I said, no, put that away. And then we go down this aisle as I'm getting to the dairy section. She grabs this toy. I said, no, put that away. And then we get over here and she grabs this. I said, no, put that away. You see, as I'm going towards the milk, she's distracted by all the glitz and glitter. And you know, the Bible says you and I are to have a singular focus in the word knowing Christ. And you know what happens? We get distracted by the toys and the candy of the world. It pulls us away. 
and we don't pursue Christ. And this is a constant self-awareness. You have to guard your heart, as Proverbs chapter 4 says, because if you don't guard your your heart, the world, the flesh, and the devil can crowd in there and keep you from that singular focus. And so the Apostle Paul says, this one thing I do. Well, there's a sixth principle that he gives here if we're going to know Christ, and that is we must refuse to dwell on the past. In verse 13, He says the classic words that we all know, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. What was it that lied ahead? It was the finish line. And Paul says, as I'm running this Christian race, he says, I'm not looking behind me. He says, I'm not dwelling on the past. If you and I are going to grow, we cannot live in the past. We cannot dwell in the past. Now, listen carefully. There are some counselors today that say, look, you don't want to poke around in the past. It's a fruitless effort. You just want to keep your eyes on the future. And there's a half truth to that. But what I want to tell those counselors is a lot of times the past does impact our present. Watch this. If you're not addressing the past, God wants you to address the past without living there. You say, well, what are the things that we tend to focus on in the past? Well, one thing is our previous accomplishments. Paul, it was his religious credentials in Philippians 3, 1 through 9. He said, I had all these religious accomplishments, and they were scubalon, they were excrement when I came to know Christ. For some people, it could be their past hurts. It could be their failures. It could be their sins. Maybe as a parent, you failed. You blew it. And maybe you've lost your children. They don't want anything to do with you. I understand the hurt of that but you cannot dwell on that. For some of you, it may be a failed marriage. Maybe you were unfaithful. Maybe you just were lazy and didn't put any effort into the marriage, and the marriage ended up exploding, and it was because of you. We could go on and on and on. Some people have been molested. They have been raped. And as a result, they live in the past, and they can't seem to overcome that. And what it does, it's like running a race with combat boots on. It slows you down. And listen, I ran track in high school. I was a dual athlete. I played football. That was my primary sport. And then I ran track during the off-season. And I remember running the 220 relay. And you had to take the baton and hand it off to the next runner. And I remember running the 100 meters. And my coach told me, whenever you run, you keep your eye on the finish line. He says, when you run, you never look back to see where the runner is that is next to you. You never look to the side because that split second can cause you to lose the race. And you know what a lot of Christians are doing? They're doing this as they're trying to run their Christian race. And it's like running in quicksand. You cannot do it. And so we've got to learn to deal with the past and then begin to move forward in our Christian life. Well, there's a seventh principle that you and I must follow if we're going to know Christ. And that is we must be open to God's correction or revelation in our life. Verse 15, Paul says that let us therefore, as many as are perfect, and here he's not talking about sinless perfection, but he's talking about maturity. When the Bible uses the word perfect, sometimes that word means maturity. He says, all of you who are mature have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude God will reveal that also to you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, what I just got done was discussing with you about spiritual maturity and reaching for the prize and forgetting what lies behind and knowing his resurrection power, being willing to suffer. He says, those are the things that are going to help me attain spiritual maturity. He says, mature people have that same mindset. 
However, he says, if there's anybody of you that I'm writing to you that disagrees with me, or he says, sees it differently, he says, God's going to reveal that to you. You know what he's saying? The Holy Spirit is going to convict you that you're not having the same mindset that you should have. And so here's the principle. Whenever you and I have a different attitude about spiritual growth or we drift from our spiritual growth, you know what one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is? Is to convict us. The Holy Spirit convicts us that we've strayed off. And you know how the Holy Spirit does that? The Holy Spirit uses other people. The Holy Spirit uses sermons. The Holy Spirit uses negative circumstances. The bottom drops out and the roof caves in. And you know what? That gets our attention. His primary tool is to use the Word of God. And so if we have an attitude that basically says, well, you know what, I'll just come to church and I'll be a Sunday Christian only. I'm not really going to mature in my walk with God. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. Now, here's the question. Are you listening? When I got here, I had to find a dentist a year and a half ago. I've always gone to the dentist two times a year, and I've only had one cavity in my life. And so I had this hygienist in New Jersey. She would work on my teeth. And so I get here. And by the way, in those five years in New Jersey, never had a cavity. So I get here, and I got the hygienist working on me. And I said, hey, proudly, I've, never had a, I've only had one cavity in my life. She says, well, Mr. Nimmer, she says, I got bad news for you. I was like, ugh. She says, you got 13 cavities. And I said, something's wrong with her brain. 13 cavities? I was like, there's no way. So she said, let me show you the x-rays. She puts them up. Then the head honcho, Dennis, comes in. He goes, yeah, you got 13 cavities. He goes, what I would recommend is you start doing them progressively because if you wait, it's going to cost you a lot of money because we're going to have to put a crown on. We all know dental insurance. It's not really that great. So I left. I called my hygienist in New Jersey, and I said, they told me I have 13 cavities. She said, send the x-rays to me. Sent them over. She said, you don't have 13 cavities. She said, some dentists are very aggressive, and the slightest thing they want to start drilling. Plus, they want this. So I go to another dentist in Lexington to get a second opinion. And what they did was they stuck this instrument in my mouth. And you know what that instrument did? That instrument lit up my mouth, and they were able to see if I had a cavity. He said, Mr. Nimmer, you don't have 13 cavities. I said, well, then why the discrepancy? He said, it's like doctors. You can get one opinion here and another opinion here. But you know, that light was able to expose whether or not I had cavities. And that's exactly what the ministry of the Holy Spirit does. He takes the Word of God. And when we drift from our spiritual maturity and growth, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and reveals to us that we're not maturing. Some of you understand that. When you're not growing like you should, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is like a javelin to the heart. You ever been sitting in a sermon or reading the Word and you're like, ouch, ouch, the Holy Spirit speaks to you. So, if you want to grow, you got to be open to God's correction or revelation. Well, there's an eighth principle as we wind down here, and that is we must avoid regressing. We must avoid regressing. Notice, if you will, verse 16. He says, if you're not maturing in verse 15, God is going to reveal that to you if you have the wrong attitude. However, verse 16, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. In other words, don't regress beyond where you've reached. Listen, I was, I was angry when I was 188, and I couldn't get beyond that when I was trying to lose weight. Well, you know what the goal was not to do? 
Ah, that's it, I give up. And now I go from 188 to 189 to 190 to 191. Listen, you know what I did? I deviated from that standard at 188. Paul is saying, look, at least stay at 188. You know what some Christians do? They start off in their Christian life growing. They're excited for Jesus. They can't wait to go to church. They can't wait to pray. They study the Word of God with zeal. They want to serve God. And you know what happens after several months or a year? They hit a spiritual brick wall because they're not on that mountaintop anymore. And I've seen this happen so many times in my ministry. John has seen it. I've actually discipled. I can think of one individual that I discipled, and for about eight months, he was really growing in his walk with God. And what happened was incrementally and very imperceptibly, he began to drift in his walk with God, and I would try to hold him accountable, and he would give me reasons why he couldn't, excuses. And you know what happened? That original standard that he grew to, he ended up regressing past that. You know, God wants you to stay where you're at in the sense that at least don't go beyond where you've gone to in your spiritual walk. Now, let me say this very clearly. God doesn't want you to stay where you're at. It's not like Paul is saying, well, you know, at least stay at the standard you're at and just stay there. No, he wants you to go beyond that. But don't regress in your Christian life. And again, you could be a Sunday Christian and still be regressing in your heart. Here's how. You're not in the Word on a regular basis. You're not praying. You're not seeking the Lord. You're not investing financially in His kingdom. And so you need to ask yourself this question this morning. Are you regressing in your walk with God or are you progressing? Like I said, in one sense, there's no middle ground. You're either progressing or you're regressing in your walk with God. Well, there's a ninth principle that he gives here if you and I are going to grow and know Christ, and that is we must follow godly examples. Notice, if you will, verses 17 through 19. He says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, I want you to imitate me. I want you to mimic me. I want you to trace your life on my life. Verse 18, why? For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, they're going to hell. And notice he says their God is their appetite. What does that mean, that they're gluttonous? No, he's saying they live for their fleshly appetites. And notice what they do. They glory in their shame, and they set their mind on earthly things. Is this not a description of our culture? Our culture lives for fleshly appetites, And you know what we do? We glory in our shame. What does that mean? Things that should cause shame in our culture, you know what we do? We exalt it, we have parades, and we plaster it on the television and social media. And he says their mind is set on earthly things. They don't have the mind of Christ. And so Paul is saying here to the Philippians, if you want to grow, imitate me. Follow my lifestyle. Follow my passion. Follow my desire to know God. Why? Because there's a lot of people out there that will influence you negatively. And so here's the key to spiritual growth. Be careful who you hang around. Make sure you have people that are going to influence you in a positive way. People that are going to impact you. You know, the Bible says that we all should have a Timothy in our life and a Paul in our life. A Paul is someone that we can model our life after. A Timothy is someone that we can disciple. Who are you listening to? Who are you hanging around? 
Do you have somebody that you're imitating their life? Recently, I had to get another key made for my daughter, and I went to Home Depot, and here's the key machine. Instead of dealing with the person, I went to this machine, and it was really interesting because you could see the process happening. I took my key after I paid, and I put the key inside, and then all of a sudden, the machine went, it dropped it down, and then you could hear the cutting, and then all of a sudden, both keys dropped. You know what it did? It took the original key, and it made a duplicate of it. It patterned itself after that original key. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, trace your life, pattern your life after somebody that's going to help you mature and grow. If you're hanging around somebody on your job, if you're hanging around friends, if your associations are pulling you down spiritually, the Bible says you better be careful because bad company corrupts good morals. Well, there's one final principle if you and I are going to grow and know Christ. Notice, if you will, verses 20 and 21. And that is focus on the return of Christ. Focus on the return of Christ. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body, verse 21, of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. How is he going to do that? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul ends this chapter by saying to the Philippians, you're citizens of Rome. And we know this, even though they lived in a colony called Philippi, they were still citizens of Rome. And so it is with you and I. Even though we live in Lexington, South Carolina, we are all citizens of heaven. You see, we have a dual citizenship. Not only are we citizens of the U.S., but we are citizens of heaven. And Paul is saying, if you're a citizen of heaven, you're not like the world that sets its mind on earthly things. He says, you as a Christian need to set your mind on the return of Jesus Christ. He says, we eagerly await the Lord to come from heaven. Here's what the Greek word means, eagerly await. It means this. It means to be on your tiptoes. You know, like the little boy that's looking out the window for his dad to come home? He's kind of stretching himself. There is an eagerness for Jesus Christ to return. Why? Because when Jesus comes back at the rapture, you know what he says he's going to do? He's going to take our bodies, if we're alive, or if we've already died and our bodies have been cremated or they're in the tomb, he's going to take them and he's going to transform them, 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the twinkling of an eye faster than it takes light to hit your pupil. God is going to transform your body, and he's going to make it like the body of Jesus Christ. You say, Mike, how does this help me in my spiritual growth? Simply this. When you focus on the return of Christ, what does 1 John 3 says? say? It purifies us. It says when we have that hope, it purifies us. Why? Because we know when Jesus Christ comes back, we're going to be held accountable. Not for hell, not for condemnation if we're true born-again Christians, but for evaluation. And I'll tell you what, you know what motivates me to keep my life in order? Not only my love for God and my love for my family, but I know there is a day coming where I'm going to have to face my Lord. Again, not for hell, 
but I want Jesus to say, Mike, well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't squander the gifts that I gave you. You didn't squander the money that I gave you. Now, am I perfect? Absolutely not. But I want to be faithful in running that race. And you know, Jesus Christ coming back is a motivation for me to get busy serving God, to get busy developing my walk with God, being in the Word of God, being in prayer. That's a motivation. And so the Apostle Paul says we need to focus on the coming of Christ. Last week, I went to the Billy Graham Center in Charlotte. You ever been there before? If you've never been, you got to go. It was really motivating. It was really inspiring. It takes you through different rooms. You see his life. It's unbelievable. Well, they're both buried on the property, Billy and his wife, Ruth. Here's Billy's tombstone right here. It says etched in here, he says, a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's very humble and it's very simple. But I want you to notice his wife's tombstone, Ruth Bell Graham. And look what it says under her, and I thought this was great. End of construction, thanks for your patience. Why? She's in glory. She's awaiting her body to come out of the grave. Well, she'll be united, body and soul. That's glorification. But you know what? When Jesus Christ comes back, end of construction. End of construction. We're done. And so until that time happens, we need to grow. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you growing in your walk with God? Or are you just a cultural Christian? Are you just a Sunday attender? See, a lot of Christians, they come on Sunday because it salves their conscience. Well, I don't want to miss church because that's what I'm supposed to do. I live in the South, and my mama raised me that way, and so I'm going to come to church, and it salves our conscience. Listen, that's not spiritual growth. You can't grow without going, and I'm not saying you could never miss. We're not talking about perfection here, but are you growing, or are you content staying a Gerber Christian? wearing spiritual diapers, or are you reaching maturity? God wants you to reach maturity. What are the 10 principles? Let's recap them real quickly. If you want to grow, you must depend on His power. You must be willing to suffer. You must recognize you have not arrived. You must develop a persevering attitude. You must cultivate a singular focus. You must refuse to dwell on the past. You must be open to God's correction or revelation. Avoid regressing. Follow godly examples and focus on the return of Christ. Now, with this last slide, let me give you a couple other suggestions because Paul was not being exhaustive. You need to meditate on the Word of God regularly. I think we all know that. Pray regularly. Get involved in serving. There is a time to rest. There is a time to receive. But listen carefully. Are you listening? Say amen. If you will not get involved in serving, you will not grow like you should. Let me say that again. If you don't want to get involved in serving Jesus with your gifts, you will not develop like you should. You will stay an infant Christian. Attend church, small group, and then deal with sin in your life. These are ways that we can grow in our walk with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. 
lot of material this morning, but Father, I pray that it would encourage us, challenge us, convict us. Father, I think we all agree here that none of us have arrived. We're all in process. We're still under construction. And I pray, Father, that all of us here would be pursuing you, that you would be our passion. And Lord, help us not to allow the world, the flesh, the devil to crowd out the singular focus of knowing you. And if you're sitting here this morning with all heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe God has spoken to you. Maybe you've kind of drifted. You're, you're not running or you're running the race, but you're kind of just coasting. You're jogging. Some of you have stopped running. You've run off the track. Would you pray to God this morning and do business with God and ask God to speak to you? And if you need to confess and repent, get right with God. He loves you and he wants to forgive you and get back in the race and start running. Let's just take 30 seconds to do that. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and how he's an example to all of us that we can mimic and imitate. Help us to run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross and suffered its shame, but is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Thank you, Lord, that we have glory awaiting us. Until that time, help us to pursue you. In Jesus' name.